Uh, Romans chapter 14 and 15 are such key chapters in your Bible <clears throat> that you can't just jump into them without understanding really well the context of how it all works. And of course, I've told you, and we've been preparing you for this for quite some time, how that this, these two chapters really deal with you know, our relationship with each other and how we function together. And uh, last week, we, we really got out and talked about an area that we've really not talked much about in this church. Uh, we've hit around it, but never really dug it out uh, till we had to get to this point, and that is talking about our liberty in Christ. And now we understand what our liberty is, that uh, once we've gotten saved, and once Christ died on the cross, that, that uh, we're no longer under the law. We now have liberty in Christ. And uh, many people we saw last time abuse that and thinking that that means that you can do whatever you want to do in, in, in life and all of those things. And of course, we've, we've learned now that that's not true. We learn now that our liberty in Christ is not for whatever I want to do with my life, but rather uh, for doing what God has called me to do. You've heard me say it many, many times, and it's going to be an underlying theme in what we're talking about today. God has a plan for your life. I think it's lesson number seven in your discipleship, lessons that we take new Christians through that talks about God's will for your life versus God's plan for your life. God has something he wants you to do. And uh, last week, I gave you four great verses that go along with and help you better understand your liberty. The first one was in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where it talks about the fact that, yes, we have liberty, but we're not to lose our liberty for an occasion of the flesh. I gave you another one in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. And talked, uh, talked about uh, in dealing with people that you don't use your liberty as a cloak uh, of maliciousness. In other words, you don't hide behind the freedom you have in Christ to do things that are not godly and things that are going to hurt other people. I gave you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, uh, all things are lawful, the Bible says, but not all things are expedient. We took the word expedient, and I told you that the word expedient means wise or something you want to do. Then I gave you the counterpart to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, which basically just says all things are lawful. And this was really the key where we ended last week, but not all things edify not. And I told you and left you last week with the fact that we as God's people, uh, on whatever spiritual level we are, especially us older Christians that have been around for a while, we need to do things that help young Christians, edify them. And that's where we ended last couple of weeks and laid out those pr principles to better understand this great chapter. Now, I want to begin reading today in chapter 14, and we're going to come on down through here and take a major section of this, and then we'll come back and look at another section next week, and then we'll, some point here, we'll move into 15, and we'll close out the book of Romans. But here's what it says in 14, 1 through 8. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, uh, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us lived unto himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for those that have come out today. We pray that they'll leave with the blessing that you have for them. Most of the people in this room today probably know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. And I personally believe that most of them, if not all of them, that are claimed to be saved probably want to do what's right with their life. But boy, it gets confusing today in the world that we live in with so many things that we hear and see and have to face and deal with and the reality of life that is so different from the Bible that we try to follow. And Lord, it does get confusing. And always try, Lord, to be uh, unconfusing when I stand in this pulpit. I realize, as we saw last week, the sacredness of this pulpit, the centrality of it, that it brings the tension, not to the one speaking, but to the Word of God, which is being proclaimed. And I ask you, Father, today that you'll, you'll take and, and use this for the honor and glory to strengthen the brethren, help the leaders in this church to be better leaders, help the younger ones to grow, to get to the point where they can lead, but at the end of the day, Father, let us understand that we're all God's family. And though there are things that, that we have to deal with, with young Christians, uh, Lord, we need to understand that grace, tolerance, and all of those things uh, need uh, to be in our lives to help them grow. Help us today to see these great examples and to take the principles and apply them to our hearts. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this chapter is built around four or five really great principles. Most, most key chapters in the Bible, if you'll, if you'll lay them out, you will find that they are built around four or five tremendous principles. My other one I think I've read off the top of my head, and we talked about this in Bible study one Thursday night, is Philippians chapter 4. You're going to find four or five of the greatest life-changing principles in Philippians chapter 4. And the whole Bible is wrapped around those four principles. That's the way it is here in chapter 14. In fact, here we're dealing with our relationship with each other. And there's four or five great principles in this chapter that over the next couple of weeks we want to look at and then put them in the proper context in our life for dealing with uh, younger Christians or the brethren, brethren in general. You remember that over the last couple of weeks I, I talked about three things you need to have in your life if you're going to grow properly spiritually. Really there were six, but we'll talk about the first three. And I told you briefly that the first thing you've got to do is you've got to come to the place in your life where you see God for who he really is. I think this fundamentally screws more people up uh, in their relationship with God than any other single thing that they probably do or, or don't do, simply because they don't have the right perspective of who God is. And of course, after you get the right perspective of God, and that's why we have the classes that we have and the one-on-one that you so desperately can, can need to grow and get it all together. The second thing that you need to come to in your life is you need to see yourself from the way God sees you. Many people come into uh, Christianity with a lot of baggage, a lot of problems, a lot of things that they've had to struggle through. Uh, and uh, when they finally get saved, uh, they have such a hard time many times forgiving themselves that they actually carry that on into the relationship with God and think that God can't forgive them when in actuality, the day you got saved, 
you got a clean slate. Old things are passed away and all things become new. The third one we talked about is we need to see each other as God sees us. And these last two are really the, the, the subjects of this chapter. One, seeing ourselves from God's standpoint and then seeing each other from God's standpoint. And, and there's some great examples of how we should, you know, uh, deal with each other. I talked about the ability to discern and to have discretion. We're going to define those words for you today. They're very important in your life. And give you the ability to choose your battles. And I told you that there are some issues in churches that you don't have any, you don't have any wiggle room on. You have to deal with them because they will, we will hurt the church. And then there's other areas where, you know, you have to, uh, you have to realize that that's not a doctrinal issue and you don't fight over those issues. And that's what we got here in Romans chapter 14. Now, the first problem we find here is food. And uh, the first, an issue has arisen here of what you can eat and what you cannot eat. You know, it's always been surprising to me how that so many of God's people really don't, uh, they, they just try to, they use the Old Testament and try to bring it into the New Testament, even though that much of, we know from now, we talked about up to this point, the Old Testament has no effect on us. I learned a couple of phrases early in my Christian life. I've talked about them before, not for a while, but, but uh, I've talked about them before. I learned that in Christianity, you have basically two concepts you have to understand. You're going to find people who do things that are Christian, and they do things that are spiritual. And then you're going to find that there's another set of issues that people do things that are biblical and they are scriptural. Now, I'm not concerned in my life about what's Christian or what's spiritual, because so much of Christianity today is Christian, and it has the facade of being spiritual, but it's not biblical, and it's not scriptural. In other words, if we're Bible-believing Christians, then what we do, how we conduct ourselves, how we deal with issues, has not to be based on Christian principles, but rather biblical principles. It's not based on spiritual concepts, but rather scriptural concepts. If you would go into most churches today, and this is not a knock on most churches, this is just a a true statement, you would find that probably 95 to 98, maybe even close to 100% of the stuff that they do are not found in the Word of God. And they do it because they have been taught down through the last three or four generations that this is what Christians do. And we all know that what has happened in the last five or six generations is we've gotten away from the Word of God. And uh, people to this day uh, have convictions on things or preferences in their life that in reality have nothing to do with the Bible, but they make doctrinal issues out of them. One of the books in the Bible that you want to read at some point and and get a handle on uh, is the book of Galatians. It's It's a case in point. The New Testament church has now started... And the church at Galatia was started by Paul on his, one of his missionary trips through there. They started out really good, understanding all the New Testament concepts and the New Testament principles. But then what happened? The Bible says a group of people called the Judaizers came in. What did the Judaizers do? They come into that church and they said, oh, you follow the New Testament? That's great. We do too. Yeah, Jesus Christ did die on the cross, didn't he? But you got to have all the Old Testament stuff to go along with it. 
And this is one of the great books where Paul uh, takes, the, takes a personal uh, issue with them because of the fact that the declaring of the good news of the gospel and the fact that the Old Testament was done away with was his primary mission. And he goes to work on them, and it's a great book. But I find that the Judaizers are alive even today. You find God's people who think that some conviction that they have, and this is the problem in chapter 14, that some preference that they have. Uh, I've, I've met Christians that actually think that there is a Christian diet that we ought to follow. This is part of the problem we've got in Romans chapter 14. You had one people who thought that you only ate vegetables, vegetarians, and the other person enjoyed a, a, a steak or ate meat, and there, and, and there was an issue over that thing. And many times you'll find that younger Christians or Christians that have not grown properly, they'll come to the point where they, they actually believe that there's such a thing as a Christian diet. Now, let me, let me explain this to you. I think you ought to eat right. But I think that that is your own personal choice based on the fact that you understand that you only have one body to serve God with. Jerry Falwell was a great a preacher, and I, I heard him back in the 50s when he, when he was really a great preacher before he got caught up on all the junk that he got caught up in. But he was a very influential person in many things in Christianity. And as far as I'm concerned, he died way before his time. Do you know why he died? Because he just ate about nine Big Macs every day of his life. And you know what? When you get now, you know, you know, you know some of you, you know, Chris and I were talking in the back. Zach, you know, Zach worked all night last night. He went to work at 8 o'clock, got off at 5 this morning. You probably didn't lay down at all, did you? Or did you a little bit? But showed up in the morning and do the work. I was telling Chris back there, we both agreed that if we had to do that, we'd be passing out. I mean, uh, you know, but see, when you're young, you can do that, see? When you're young, you can eat whatever you want to eat, and it doesn't affect you. But when you get our age, you can't. And uh, it's a place when you get 40 or 50, you begin to see, you know, how quickly that your body now uh, is, is rejecting, and you get all kinds of problems. And there's a man that was a, a great preacher. Uh, he impacted Christianity, whether you like him or you don't. He, he, he was God's man, and God used him, and whatever the case, whatever your opinion is. But in my opinion, he died way before he should have died. You know why? Because of the fact that he, he ate wrong. And uh, you just got to have some, you just had to have some understanding in things like that. But there is no Christian diet. Now, at the same time, I've run into people that, that talk about, you know, having a Christian business. And there again, that's a, that's a Christian concept, a spiritual concept, but there's no, there's no, that's not a biblical concept. The only thing that you can actually say in the Bible or life that is absolutely unequivocally Christian is the church. Now, you may be a Christian that operates a business, but there are no Christian businesses. You don't find them in the Bible. And, of course, people get hung up on that. I've, I've found people that come to the point where they think that Christianity is a hard set of rules. You know, I, I, and, and of course, you know, they think that you're spiritual by keeping the rules. And of course, that doesn't work either. 
I know churches that if you want to be a worker in a church, they've got a three-page thing you've got to read that you've got to sign that you won't do this, 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 or you can't be a worker. And, you know, I understand that there needs to be lines drawn if you're going to be in leadership because, obviously, you know, your accountability and responsibility as a leader is much greater than the average person. But you can't put it down on a piece of paper. If it's not already in your heart, putting it on a piece of paper isn't going to do it. You know, and I, I, I know some people who don't drink coffee. I know people who don't drink Coke. I know people who don't have anything with caffeine in it. And, you know, and I understand that. But the, and, and, that, and that's a person's choice. And this is the th- concept of Romans chapter 14. But please, if you find yourself in that category, uh, don't think that it, you're more spiritual because you don't. And at the same time, don't think yourself more spiritual because you think that you can One thinks that they cannot and they don't want to do it. The other one chooses to do it. It's not a biblical issue. It is a conviction and a preference. And this is the problem that they were having in the church of Corinth, or church of, when Romans, when he's talking here. Some people won't eat pork. Some people won't eat meat. They'll eat chicken or fish. Then you have people that won't eat chicken or fish or pork or meat and all they eat is vegetables. But the problem is that some of God's people get to the point where they try to make what they eat a biblical issue. Most of you don't know this guy. You probably never heard of him. Some of the older guys were. How many ever heard of Lester Roloff? Anybody? Oh, well, more than, more than I thought. Okay, good. Well, Lester Roloff died in a plane crash back in 1974, I think it was. And Lester Roloff, uh, he had a he had a, uh, down in Corpus Christi, Texas, he had a boy's home and a girl's home for wayward boys, and, and, and they really turned out a lot of good people. But Lester Roloff was one of these kind of guys that uh, he, uh, he lets you know on no uncertain terms it, of, of what you were eating or drinking and, and how it, you know, did not play into uh, what he thought should be in the Bible. And uh, he was a vegetarian. Uh, he didn't drink coffee, didn't drink caffeine. I mean, all kinds of things that he didn't do. But for him, you see, he would get up in the pulpit and he would, he would let you have it because in his mind, he thought that uh, that what, what made you a better Christian. Now, it may get you to live longer and it may be a better deal for you physically, but it certainly doesn't make you a better Christian because there's no such thing as a Christian diet. Now, on the other hand, you had Pete Ruckman, who we will eat anything that won't eat him first. <laughs> One of the greatest times in my life was when I was at a camp where both him and Lester Roloff were there. <laughs> oh, it was great. And they got along, they loved each other, got along, and, and, but it was the first time that I ever saw Roloff not say something to somebody because of the fact that, you know, it was a thing where, uh, you know, he, he couldn't intimidate Ruckman like he could when you're preaching to a crowd. You can say a lot of things to people who can't say something back than you will face to face, you know. And here they were sitting there, and old Lester Roloff, he's at breakfast, he would take bacon and he would cut the fat off the bacon. That's where he was. And he would have salad, and, he, and I remember Ruckman. Ruckman had a pork sandwich that was piled that high. 
He had Tabasco sauce on it, barbecue sauce on it, onions on it. I mean, you know what? When you go through, you have you have you have potatoes, you have coleslaw, you have all this stuff. He would take the bread, put the pork on it, pile it high, put put the put the the coleslaw on the sandwich. I mean, I know his reasoning, it all goes to the same place anyhow, so why separate it out, you know? And he would pack that thing up and put it on there, and I remember sitting there watching old Ruckman. And he, he not only ate his food, he wore his food. It was all over his face, all over his shirt, and here's, here's, here's him over here slamming it down like some pig in a silo, and here's Lester Roloff just cutting it out and eating it just right, you know, and otherwise, I thought, there is a contradiction. And yet, they both got along. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Some of God's people get to the point where they try to make what they eat a biblical issue. And, and, now, and, and in defense of them, here's their reasoning. You say, well, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. I understand that. That's true. So you should not defile that temple. And that's a great point. And there are some things in this life that will obviously you can eat that will defile your temple or put into this temple that you don't want to do. There's some clearly things. Illegal drugs is one of them. Obviously, you defile. My dad died when he was 54 years old. My dad probably should be still be alive today. You know why he died at 54? And he was a saved man. You know why? Because he smoked four packs of cigarettes a day, at least. And he, he smoked the real deal. He didn't smoke the ones with the filters on them. Man, he went after them. Old gold was his deal. And I remember when my dad got lung cancer. My dad was about a 200-pound guy. When he died, I carried him. Uh, before he died, I picked him up and carried him, and he must have weighed 55 pounds. But he had, from the time, he, he was born in Maryland. We're all, all our family are coal miner families, you know. We all come out of West Virginia and the mines and all of that stuff. He probably was smoking since he was nine years old. He was born in a log cabin. I saw the cabin. This is not one of these, well, my dad used to walk 10 miles to school. No, no, no. He was born in a log cabin with, with six other brothers and three sisters. I've seen a long, they didn't have electricity back in the 20s back then. That didn't look like something out of Daniel Boone's time. I saw it when I was a kid. They took me there. It was still there. It's probably gone now. And he comes to the place where he should still be alive today. But you know why? He took something into his body that killed him. Because the doctors told him that the lung cancer he got was because of the cigarettes that he had put in for so many. And even after he was told that, and he did surgery, they cut my poor dad all the way down here, all the way over here, flipped him back over, took one complete lung out, and then took another half a lung out and sewed it back up. He couldn't even breathe because of what cigarettes did to him. And we'd look around the house, and I'd say, where's Dad? She says, I don't know. And I'd say, my sister, where's Dad at? She says, oh, he was out in the yard a minute ago. And I'd walk back after he lost a whole lung and another half a lung. I'd walk down to find my dad, walk into the garage. You know what my dad was doing? Just sneaking a cigarette. I don't know what to tell you. Guy said to me one time, will cigarettes keep me from getting to heaven? No, but it'll get you there faster. Some things just really you don't want to defile your body with. Booze is another one. 
But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of things that will defile your temple. In truth, anything in excess will. That's why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, that all things be done in moderation. There has to be a balance in Christianity. And you have to recognize that anything you do too much. Now, I'm going to make a statement that probably will shock many of you coming from me. And maybe some of you will gasp at. So, uh, but it's a true statement. That even applies to the Bible. Do you realize that you can spend so much time in the Bible that it does it? It ceases to be good for you, and it starts to be bad for you. And I'll tell you why that is. God's concept is Proverbs eleven one: a false balance is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Now we think the word abomination is a terrible word, and it is. It's a terrible word. But you ought to take a word study sometime and find out what God counts abomination in the Bible. And you're going to find it isn't the deep, dark, human sacrifice thing that you think it is. A lot of it is the everyday things that we do. The Bible says a false balance in your life is an abomination. We A couple of weeks ago or months ago, we saw where showing discord among the brethren is an abomination. Uh, we, 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 we need to have a balance. Uh, the, you're, like the, you're, like a, you're supposed to be like a sponge. And all of you women that mop floors or clean your house or even some of you guys that help them out, you know how that works. You can take a sponge and it's a great deal. And you can, you can soak up water with it and get that thing up. But pretty soon, you don't soak up any more water. It just pushes the water around. You know why? Because it's full. Then what do you do, ladies? You take it over to the sink or the bucket and you, you wring it out and then you pick up some more water. That's the way we are. We're sponges. When you come on Sunday morning and Thursday night and one-on-one and everything that we do, you absorb. You take it in. You, you take it in. You absorb it. But at some point, you got to wring it out. And when you don't, you get out of balance. It's everything. I know a pastor, I'll show you what I mean. I know, a, I know several, but I've got one in mind right now who is absolutely strict on keeping all the rules. If you don't wear a suit to his church, he looks at you like, uh, he looks at you like you're not even spiritual because he thinks every pastor needs to wear a suit. If you ladies don't wear dresses to his church, man, you, 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 you can never do anything in that church. All the men have to have ties. There's a dress code. They have a hair length for all the young men. And yet when that pastor gets up and preaches, he's at least 400 plus pounds overweight. You know what he's done? He has one set of rules for you, but he has another rule for himself. Oh, he's got a shoot on, 3X. He's got a tie on. He'll keep the rules. Someplace in his life, he just forgot that gluttony was a sin. See how it works? And I'm telling you. Now, in chapter 14, we have a great illustration of how Christians think when they don't know how to apply the Bible and how we as older Christians need to understand and help them through it. And uh, they had an issue of what, uh, what somebody could eat and versus what somebody could not eat. Now, let's go back to the Bible for a minute and let's, let's end the food issue here for once and for all. 
Colossians chapter 2, and we talked about this before. You don't even have to turn back to it. You can just follow along if you want here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, we talked about because of the cross of Christ, him dying on a cross and paying the price and nailing the Old Testament law. The Bible clearly said, because of that, therefore let no man judge you according to meat, that's what you eat, or drink, what you drink, coffee, tea, caffeine, no caffeine, whatever the case. You remember our church at Corinth, don't you? We talked about that last week. How the church at Corinth was, had similar issues. And the church at Corinth was a whole church full of babies. They just absolutely were. And they had, they had similar issues in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember that story? The Christians were going down to the market on Monday morning. And they were, they were looking down there, going to buy their groceries for the week. And they walked through the meat section. And there they saw signs up here, <clears throat> Hamburg, 50 cents a pound. Over here it was Hamburg, $1.25 a pound. Somebody said, wow, what's the difference in price? <clears throat> Somebody said, well, the meat for 50 cents a pound was used in the pagan temples yesterday for their sacrifices, and they didn't use it all. So they sell the residue back here, and you can buy it a dollar. So you can buy it a lot cheaper if you buy that. And the other meat that's more expensive, a dollar and a quarter, that's never been used. That's just been cut off the deal this morning. But both meat is good, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just the fact that they can't sell it as new meat because of the fact that they had it down in the pagan temples, worshiping in their God, but they had some left over, so the guy buys it back and sells it. Christian says, you know what? I'm buying the 50 cents a pound meat. The other Christian said, what? You're going to buy meat and eat meat that was down in the pagan temples yesterday? With all those demonic gods and all those stone graven images when the Bible says, thou shalt have no other God before me, you're going to eat that meat? The guy said, absolutely. Not me, I'm buying a dollar twenty-five a pound. I'm going to stay true to God. You know what Paul said when he finally had to deal with that issue? He says, what's wrong with you? Do you really believe that there's anything to those dumb? He uses the word dumb, stupid idols. Do you really believe there's anything to their, their faith of those un, all those graven images and what they follow? <clears throat> Do you really believe there's any credence to that? He says, there's nothing wrong with buying the meat that was used down there. Some people had come to the point that they had taken it so far that they thought there was such a thing as Christian meat and demonic meat. And he clays them out very clearly on it. I'll tell you another great concept. Another great concept is, is found uh, over there in uh, Acts chapter 10. Remember when Peter was up on the housetop and he was struggling with the gospel going to the Gentiles because he had been an Orthodox Jew all of his life and he remembered what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 10 about not going to the Sumerians, half Jew and half Gentile, not going to the Gentiles at all, but only going to the lost house of Israel. He was a pork abstaining Mosaic law follower who held the law very dear, but now God has changed it. What did God do? Took him up on the roof. He went into a trance and saw a vision. What was the vision? God brought down a big old picnic blanket. Laid it on the deal. You know what was on it? Gates barbecue. <laughs> Arthur Bryant's smokehouse. Everything that he was not allowed to eat. Peter reacted. He said, whoa. God said, eat that thing, Peter. Peter said, not me. I'm a Christian. 
He says, I've never defiled myself with anything unclean. You know what God said? He said, look, buddy, that may have been true, but I just changed it all. And whatever, 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 whatever you once called unclean, I'm telling you it's clean now. It took him three times and he still didn't get it. Finally got it. Look at first. Now, here's one you want to look at. First Timothy chapter four. Here's your here's a great one. And this should end it for you. Then we're going to go to work showing you how to deal with it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, <clears throat> speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now look at verse 3. Forbidding to marry and, con- uh, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know not the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Why? Verse 5, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now see, once you get through these verses, that should take care of your Christian eating program. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of your body and eat smart. I believe you should. I believe you have one body <clears throat> to serve the Lord with. And if you let it get out of shape, if you let it get to the point where you eat too much of things, my own personal history of health in my family is a disaster. My, my Diabetes is in our family <clears throat> all the way back. <clears throat> high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And so when I, when, I, when I was young, it didn't bother me. But when I turned 40 and got into the point where you start getting older, and I go for my physical, the doctor says, you're a, you, he said to me, you have diabetes in your family, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, why? How do you know that? He said, because you're borderline diabetic. And at that point, I had to cancel out everything in my life that meant anything worth living. <laughs> Life without Twinkies and Ho-Hos has been a cruel burden to bear. I now had to learn to drink Diet Pop. I hate Diet Pop. If you go out to eat sometime with us or we're all eat there, you'll find when I order what to drink, I always get Diet with some piece of slice of lime in it and that's to kill the taste. But it's one of those things, what am I going to do? I had now, instead of going to the grocery store and picking up orange juice for breakfast, I got to find this stuff that, that is 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 got all this low stuff in it that it doesn't matter and you now you got it and you drink it it doesn't taste like orange juice it tastes like antifreeze man that's where you're at i think you ought to take care of your body and eat smart and when the doctor tells you <coughs> you got a problem hey this is your liberty this is your liberty God may have in his plan for you to live by, to be 70 years old. But by your plan, you're going to do what you want to do because you have liberty, so you die when you're 50. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat, take care of your body and eat smart. What I'm telling you is it's not a doctrinal issue in the Bible. Verses 3, 4, and 5 clearly say that if you have faith to eat it and thank God in your heart for it, then go ahead and eat it. He says that nothing is to be refused because it's sanctified by the word and prayer, verse 5. But you've got to use the aspect of all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Now, that's my liberty in Christ. But at the same time, 
and this is where we get into the problem here, I don't have a right to use my liberty as an occasion of my flesh. In chapter 14, we have a weaker Christian who does not understand that great doctrine yet. Now, when it comes to eating, here's the rules you want to follow. And it's real easy. If you got faith to eat it, go ahead and eat it. You have the liberty to do it. You have to make the judgment call on it, but there's no doctrine on it. In my life, I have never had a problem with eating anything. I love raw oysters. Some people just gag at raw oysters. I love them. I can eat 80 of them in a setting. I, abs- I don't eat them anymore because, you know what, one day, I, instead of looking at the thermometer out on there with all the mercury in it, I just started looking at myself. I was glowing, so I thought to myself, I better get off the thing. <laughs> Anybody know what Baluk is? Yes. When I was in the Philippines, <clears throat> when I was in the Philippines, uh, a Baluk is duck eggs that they take and bury in the hot sand for about five days. Just to the point before they begin to rot, but the embryo begins to develop, but before they rot and turn bad, they dig them up. And you know what you do? You take those duck eggs. It's a delicacy. You take those duck eggs, you put a little hole in the end of the shell, and you suck the little thing out, the little <laughs> bird out, and, and drink the juice in it. Now look at some of you. When I was at a church in the Philippines, that was their delicacy. That's like me taking you out to, uh, to Krispy Kreme. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Come on, you get the point. I had eight or nine, oh, I had, but they had 30 people with me, but about eight or nine of us were up in the, up in the mountains, up in the villages, and we sat down to, to eat, and that's what they had. And I, and I watched some of them girls just about die, you know. I watched some of them get sick. I watched some of the guys. I mean, you know what I did? I just took a little, and I, and I, I always, you know, you know me, I always got to make a big deal out of it and, and make, and I, what I did is I took that egg, boy, cracked that thing. And I got to tell you the truth. It just tastes like, it was warm because it was buried in the sand. It tastes like chicken soup. It really did. It wasn't bad. It was the thought of what you were doing. And I chugged that sucker down and I sucked that embryo out of there. And then everybody's going, oh, my people are going, oh, God. Oh. And then just to, just to throw it in their face, it, it had a kind of a developed body. And it had little, you know how little birds have little nails on their finger? And so just to throw it in their face, I poke one off and stick it in my teeth with it. And I said, you got any more of those? Now, down in South America, oh, I got a better one coming here. But down in, down, in, down in Central America, down in Central America, they do the same thing with turtle eggs. I never had a problem. I ate iguana lizard one time on a stick. You know what, you know what an iguana lizard is? They cut its tail off. They gut it out. They take a stick and run it through its rear end, out through the top of its mouth. They put it on a fire, turn it around, and you eat it after a while. Tastes like chicken to me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, some people can't do that. You know what Beilu is? Beilu is an African drink. We were up at the Mossad uh, uh, back years ago, and we were up there. We were up there. I mean, you can hear the lions at night roaring. See the giraffes going through your... They don't have backyards, but you can see the giraffes going through the deal. And they have a drink. Uh, they have a drink that is a friendship drink. 
And it's not alcohol or anything. I, I don't think it is. It didn't taste it. But it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's called Beilu. And they make it themselves. Because they don't, can't go down to 7-Eleven and buy the ingredients. They make it themselves out of the trees and the things like that. But when they make it because it's a friend drink, you know what everybody does? They spit in it. And, and, and then they stir it up. And, they, and their idea is, because I'm your friend, um, and then give it to you and we're all friends. Now, I know that that's not good sound reasoning, but that's, that's where they're at. And you know what? It, here's the problem. If you want to win them to Christ, do you want to you reach them with the gospel? Well, then you've got to be their friend. In their mind, you know what you've got to do to be their friend? Uh, Jimmy, would you get some trash bags back there? I think we're going to have a couple problems up here. Best one's coming. <clears throat> how many know, how, and this is true. I got a picture of this one. How many know what uh, Rocky Mountain oysters are? Okay, okay. Me and Mel Shabaka, the last time we were together, this was probably late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember. Mid, mid-90s, maybe. We were in Montana. And we were doing a dual revival with about four churches out there. And uh, we were staying on a gigantic ranch. Out here, we call them farms. Out there, they're ranches. And this ranch was about 300,000 acres. It was incredible. When they go out to check their cattle, they're gone two or three days. Well, me and Mel were staying there, and, and, and all the bunk guys were coming in. I mean, they're all, all Christian, and they, want, they like good preaching, and they were thrilled that me and Mel were staying there. And they gave us a bunkhouse. Oh, in nighttime, I couldn't even find my way around the sky. There were so many stars. I was lost. In the morning, just crisp air, we'd sit down there and look up about two miles on the mountain ridge, and there'd be a 500 elk up there. Incredible stuff. And, you know, I learned so much that weekend. But they were, we were city slickers. And they wanted to give it to us because, you know, that's just the way, these guys were cowboys. I learned, back then I learned the difference, but you don't even know this. There's a difference between cowboys and caballeros. You didn't even know that, did you? Now, you need to put that in your Bible someplace, I don't know where. <laughs> these guys were cowboys. <clears throat> and they were real cowboys. They wore the leather chaps and the boots, and they, 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 were, they, were, they were there, man. And we were staying with them. Well, you know, I got Nikes on and or maybe a pair of combat boots, and Mel, you know, he's got his Palm Spring shirt on, you know, and we're not fitting in very well. And they're, getting, they're rubbing us, you know. And so the first thing they did one morning, and they're, they're trying, the first thing they did one, one morning is they, they, we walked out there and had breakfast, you know, and they cooked the breakfast up, and they had a bunch of rifles on the deal there, and they say, let's have a little target practice, because they thought they were going to shoot us. Well, they didn't know to shoot us. And we hung right in there with them. So the next thing they're going to get is they're going to get us at lunch. So they're castrating the cattle. Well, that's what they do. They'll castrate the cattle and immediately throw them castration parts on the fire and cook them up and eat them for lunch. <laughs> now, I, I don't mean to be gross, but this is what they do out west. I, don't, you know, I know you don't get those down at the plaza <laughs> or the Westport, but I'm telling you, there is a world outside Kansas City. I don't think you'll find Rocky Mountain Prairie Oysters at Hy-Vee in the deli section. <laughs> People are so naive, man. I shouldn't even finish telling this story because I would have grossed you all out. So anyway, I won't. But it, it, people, they, they, if you got grace to eat that, then go ahead. If you can bow your head and ask God to bless it, 
and thank God for it, it's not a problem. But the thing is this, but if you can't do it, that's okay too. But if you, if you can't do it, you, that's okay. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to make the fact that you cannot do it a spiritual issue versus somebody who can do it. And by the same token is, if, if, if somebody can do it, then you don't want to come to the point where uh, you, you throw it in somebody's face that they can't. See? You don't want to become a stumbling block uh, as a mature Christian. Now, out there in uh, Montana, it was just a good old fun time. And we, Mel and I got them, and they respected us the rest of the week. You know what we did? We're frying all these things up, and they think we're going to gross us out. Well, me and Mel figured it out already. And uh, me and Mel figured it out already, and the bottom line was that uh, it came to the point where uh, it was a situation where uh, they're cutting them off and putting them on the pan, getting ready to put them on the grill, and they cuss, hey, boys, come over here. You know, they're all laughing how that is. And uh, we said, what? He says, you know what? You know, you know what Rocky Mountain oyster oils are? I said, no, we don't know. We don't know anything. Oh, what is that? It looks good. Are you cooking them up? And they said, yeah. You want to have some for lunch? Me and Mel looked at each other and said, yeah, we sure would. And he said, well, I'll cook you some up. And me and Mel looked at each other. Same mind. He said, no, thanks. We walked over to the raw ones in the pan, oh. picked up four or five each one, and we're popping them up. Oh. Well, I both threw up. <laughs> but you know what? They, they respected us the rest of the week. We were walking into the church, big cowboys. Let me get that door for you, sir. <laughs> Shine your spurs, boy. <clears throat> you know, I mean, now, if you can do that, that's okay. Some people can eat anything. Some people can't. It's okay either way. But I don't make it a doctrinal issue, and neither should you. And that's the whole bottom line. If you can't eat it and have faith, then don't throw it in the face of somebody who can't. And the last two points are very important. You've got to be smarter than the problem. If you have more light, then you should also have more grace. And let me add one more thing to it. If you have more light and have more grace, then you should also have the discernment and the discretion to know how to do it. Look at verse 14 through 17 here in this great chapter of Romans 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be greed with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now, the greatest verse there I want you to see in verse 14, it says this. It says, and I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. That is an incredible verse. That is an incredible verse. That verse is just there, but that is an impacting verse that you'll never, never probably fully understand. You know what it says? And I heard this years and years ago from some of the old guys that used to preach. They used to say this. Everything bad in this life is a good thing twisted. And boy, that is so true. That is so true. Everything in this life that you can think of was intended uh, for man's good. But God, uh, by sinful, but, 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 by, but sinful man, gets it and uses to sin with. You realize, and we, I know a lot of people, and I'm not going to say this right, 
uh, is, uh, natural medicine. Is it, is it holistic, holistic, yeah, holistic. holistic medicine? There are a lot of people that, that believe in that. You know why they believe in that? Because <clears throat> that's a Bible-based concept. I mean, that's a Bible-based concept. You realize that for years and years in the 15th and 16th and 17th century, that when people had a disease, they'd do something called bleed them? You know why they would bleed them? They would bleed them because they would think that the blood was part of the problem, so they would bleed them to get the blood out, thinking they were getting the bad out, and they would get better. Well, you know what happened? When you, when you bleed somebody and, and, and takes the blood out of them, you only get weaker. It wasn't until, what, the 15th or uh, 18th, 19th, early, middle 1800s that somebody read in the Bible that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So they started giving transfusions instead of bleeding somebody. I mean, what do you think? You know, the American Indians, they didn't have a Walgreens to go to. They had stuff that, that they, you know, we, we dig oil out there, and we, do, we dig oil out there in, the, in places like that, and you see it bubbling up in the ground. You realize that the American Indians used to drink the oil or the liquid, and they used to use it for some kind of serum that helped them with certain problems? I believe personally that everything God put down here on this planet, he put here for man's good. Man is the problem. Somebody says life's a mess. There's nothing wrong with the world. It's the people in it that's the problem. And I believe that those things have a basis to them all the way down the line. I mean, the guy that dissevered penicillin, he got it out of the Bible. Jesus himself carried a trained physician with him, Luke. It was the black plague swept across Europe in the 1200s. The Jews and the Christians didn't get it. You know why they didn't get it? Because they were following the Old Testament dietary and cleansing laws and they were washing their hands in running water while the Europeans were dipping their hands down in a bowl and putting the germs back on. There's something to it all. Maybe you can't fog it all today with all of the things that, the way the things have changed in the world, but I'm telling you, that's where God started it. I mean, I don't know if you know or not, but the greatest over-the-counter thing you can get if you've got congestion and you've got cold is something called Mucinex. But you go try to buy it. You have to sign everything away in your life except your firstborn child. <laughs> now, Mucinex is something that man designed. It's an incredible drug. But you know what happens when people get it? They make meth out of it. God created tobacco to be grown, but not to be smoking. You realize of all the ingredients you ought to study sometime that you can get. Rat poison is one of the great, uh, tobacco is one of the greatest ingredients in rat poison. In other words, you know, marijuana. You come to the point where we look at marijuana and we know marijuana for what it is. But it, you realize that all the medicine you get for the, the reason why you have to go through a pharmacist and get a doctor because it's all got some kind of drugs in it. Codeine, you realize in World War II that every guy that hit the beach and every guy that parachuted in had a little first aid pack on his cat on his, that he wore. You know what was in that? One or two little vials of morphine. And you know what he did? If he got wounded and he couldn't get a medic, he broke that vial out, he stuck it in his leg, and it eased the pain. You know why they took him away after the Normandy invasion? Guess. They were easing their pain all right, but it wasn't when they got wounded. Man will take everything that God does that is right and turn it around for wrong. That's just the way it is. 150 years ago, 
a Methodist circuit riding preacher, he carried three or four things with him on the, on, the, on the circuit. You know what he carried? He carried a King James Bible, he carried a musket, he carried a himmel, and he carried a flask of whiskey. The whiskey was for medicine. Well, I remember the old boys that, that back then, even when I was around preaching, when they got sick and they got cold, they had something they fixed up, some mixture that they fixed up, and they would be sick one day and be okay the next. And part of it was, was whiskey. You realize how much of the medicine you take has an alcohol base in it? God intends it for good. Man takes it, he uses it for bad. Remember, it was Paul that told Timothy to drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. There's nothing unclean of itself. It's unsaved man who's the problem. When I was 12 years old, you know what I got for Christmas? A chemistry set. Try to give your kid a chemistry set today. Try to go find one to buy today. He'll either make an atom bomb out of it or he'll be selling drugs out of your garage. <laughs> what place could be more harmless than Brookside Science Toy and Hobby? Down in Brookside. How many have ever been there? It's a great place. I love going in there. But you know the FBI monitors that place? Why? Somebody stealing erector sets? Somebody stealing telescopes? No, they sell pharmaceutical things for chemists. All the different things that you can get. And so guys, guys go in there. And they were getting a little suspicious where, when the Joe, the scientist, walked in and said, I need, uh, I need, about, uh, I need about a quarter of a pound of, of, of this kind of uh, stuff here. And somebody else says, and I'll take about an uh, you know, eighth of a pound of that. And they put them in a little jar. And then somebody comes in and says, I want 600 pounds of this. <laughs> They're making drugs with it. Man always screws it up. That Bible says there's nothing unclean of itself. So for a Christian who follows the Bible, there's nothing unclean in itself as long as you don't use it to sin. But if a Christian thinks it's wrong, here's the problem. If a Christian thinks it's wrong, then to him it is. And that's why, why does he do that? Because he doesn't have the light you and I have. He says in verse 15, he says, But if thy brother be greed with thy meat, now walkest not thou charitably? Now, here's another great word. Charity. You talk about words that are absolutely misunderstood today with the wrong definitions. If you got over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you got the great chapter on charity. And yet, if you got any other Bible, the new NIV, they've taken the word, and the KJV, they've taken the word charity out and put the word love in. Because our idea today of charity is love. And yet in America, there's 50,000 kinds of different love. But charity is the old English word that is the epitome of love that carries with it nothing back. You give simply because of the fact that you give something unconditional. Why, we even use it to give to your favorite charity. When you give to your favorite charity, you don't want nothing back. You're giving it because out of the excess and you want to help somebody. That's why he says in... 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. 
doth not behave itself unseemingly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hope all, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity is the unconditional acceptance based on God's unconditional acceptance and love toward you and me. Charity is the mark of a mature child of God to suffer with a younger Christian and to help them to get the light. It doesn't mean that you, you give them a total free pass. You have a right, you have an obligation, you and I as older Christians, to give grace to people, to help them, but they have an obligation that they have to grow. Now, here's what I've learned over the years in this thing, and this is something if you ever get into the ministry or you guys run this place down the line, you you better learn these things. When you have younger Christians that don't grow properly, in time, their convictions or their preference become their self-righteous doctrines. You're going to have to go to too many churches to see that legalistic concept. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, we had eight or nine youth groups around the city that we all got together every other month and had some big activity for the kids. There was a church over in Kansas, a Baptist church, that would never be part of us because they thought that the fact that uh, the fact that uh, the boys wore blue jeans and the girls wore slacks uh, and their kids all wore dress slacks and dresses that they didn't want to associate with us. And obviously, it was a legalistic concept that they thought that the dress code made them more spiritual. But you find legalistic Christians the same way. See, my job is to help you, but you have to help yourself. I mean, I can have all of the answers in the world, but you have to apply them and you have to do your part. And uh, we all have issues in our lives on different levels. There'll never be a day in your life that you don't have issues, but you've always got to do the right thing in responding to them. Now, if you're going to deal with marital problems and couples having troubles, this is going to be one of the biggest problems you face. Because they don't understand what their rules are to each other, and uh, they know they don't understand how that they've got to apply these things, and they've got a, they've got an obligation to grow. When a couple comes in and they have marital problems, the woman has an obligation to herself to grow spiritually to be a better wife, and the man has an obligation to grow spiritually to be a better husband. I hear it all the time from from the guys. Well, how come you always jumping on me and you never say anything about her? Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, I'll drop the bomb wherever it needs, but I'll come back at the end of the day and say this. You know why I, I hit you harder? Because you're supposed to be the leader. You're the one that ought to be leading the way, not stopping the way. You ought to be out in front. You ought to recognize that you have the responsibility in this marriage. Why am I harder on you? The same way I'm harder on my deacons in this church than I am on just the average Joe that comes in. Why? Because you took an office with a responsibility to it. And when you got married, you took the responsibility of being the leader. You say, well, I didn't know that. That ain't my problem. You know it now. I mean, I can have all the answers. They're all life's problems. But if you're not willing to apply them and do them, see, it's grace on my part, but you've got to grow on your part. And we all have issues in life on different levels. We all need to grow in those issues no matter what it is. My job, my job, I can't solve your problems. 
Now, I know you come over and you lay them out and I tell you what you do and you think I solve them, but I really don't. I do not, as a pastor, nor does any pastor, I don't have the problem, have the answer, I don't have the ability to solve your problems. My job is to create a biblical environment in this church that is conducive to solid biblical spiritual growth in people's lives. That's all I can do. I'll give you grace, I'll give you tolerance, I'll give you long-suffering, I'll give you patience, I use discernment, I use discretion, but bottom line is, you have to be the one who has to do it. Did you ever go down to the Kansas City Stockyards? They got all, I don't know if they're down there anymore, but they got all those corrals. Do you ever notice how they got the cattle from one pen to another? They had a catwalk with a fence on both sides, it was about this wide. And when, you, when, a, when a cow went from one to the other, the cow didn't, he couldn't get any wiggle room. He couldn't go left or he couldn't go right more than a foot. The only way he could go was to go straight. And that's a lot what spiritual growth is and what a church ought to do. The church has to have patience. It has to have tolerance. It has to be long-suffering. It has to give grace in an unmeasurable amount. But at the same time, you can't let it be any wiggle room in the thing. You've got to always keep moving forward. And when you don't, that's when you have problems. That's when you have problems. And yet I say that, and you know as well as I do, there are issues in any church that you better have a zero tolerance on. That's just the way that it is. But you have to give young Christians, like Romans chapter 14, you have to understand what you would. Hey, if I had a vegetarian in my church, I don't know that I do. But if I had a vegetarian in my church and I knew you were big on that and that was your deal and you invited me out to eat someplace or we went out to lunch someplace, you know what I'd order? I'd order fish. I wouldn't sit there and order the biggest steak on the deal even if I'm paying for it. I'd order fish. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't try to I'd go against where you're at. I respect where you're at. I've been, I've preached in churches in the past where the preacher, the preacher, you, you, you had to have your hair, you couldn't touch your ears. And everywhere you went, not when you were preaching, but everywhere you went, you had to wear a suit. Now, to me, that's as ab stupid as you could ever have in your life. But when he'd invite me over to preach, you know what I'd do? I'd get a haircut and I'd pack three or four more suits. Now, I could have said, well, let me show him. I'll show him who, who got liberty. And I could have showed up in a polo shirt and jeans. But I didn't because he was the weaker one. And the Bible says, ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. So I, I went along with it. Because I understand it doesn't mean anything, but to him it's a problem, so I'm not going to be a problem. And in that, down the line after three or four years, I got a chance to talk to him about it. I had heard through the grapevine that this guy was so much into this, of a pastor wearing a suit, because they get the idea that that's your mark of being spiritual. He went skiing out in Colorado <laughs> and wore a suit under his ski suit. Now, I had heard that from several reliable forces. Never had been confirmed. But one day, he was struggling in his church. Church wasn't growing. And he, he pulled me aside because, you know, my deal was blowing out the walls. And he, he, he saw that. But, and he, come, he pulled me aside. And he said, he said, can I ask you a question? He, says, he said, I trust you. And he said, I've had you here for three or four years now. He says, tell me, from your perspective, I need a fresh set of eyes on this. What's wrong here? Why is not this church working? And I said, can I ask you a question? 
honest, honest question. Kind of personal, but honest. He said, well, sure, Bob, go ahead. I said, is it true <clears throat> that when you went skiing four or five years ago, under your ski suit, you wore a three-piece suit? He looked at me and he said, yeah, it's true. I said, do you want to know how to really win people to Christ in this church? Yeah, I really do. Here's what you do. Go out and buy you all the used cars you can get. Put them out in your lot. You've got a big lot. Put a sign up, Christian car sales. Every person who goes in to buy a car, give them a track. He said, that sounds kind of, I said, no, it sounds goofy, doesn't it? But you know what? You'll have a better chance of winning people Christ that way than you have this way. I said, people in this town drive by your church and they look at you like we look at the Amish. You're 50 years out of date. You actually get up there and talk about the fact that if you don't wear a suit, you're not spiritual. You know these people in this town can't afford a suit? You, you can't make those things doctrinal issues. You just can't. But when I went there, I mean, I did exactly what I did, did exactly what I, I knew I should do because I would, I would have never got that opportunity if I would have going to show him what liberty is. See, you got to use discernment and discretion. I, I just, I'm old school. I'm, I am. I was telling Kyle, I love Kyle's dad, Dan, because he's a, he's a coach because he's old school. I look at myself in the ministry like if I was coaching football, I'd be a Woody Hayes. Out of date. Dinosaur. Woody Hayes was old school. He didn't put up with a lot of stuff that guys get in. You didn't do it right, he'll slap you. If you didn't do it right, say no, he hit you with a helmet. That's the way I was raised. I, you know what? He didn't tolerate goofiness. He just didn't. You didn't do perform, you got nailed. It was that he had one thing on his mind, football and win the game. Now I know that's probably out of balance, but the bottom line is simply this. They don't make coaches like that anymore. Well, I was in Raytown South, and now they fired the guy up there. Bud, what was his name? Lathrop, great guy. They fired him for using harsh language. If I'd have known that, I'd have fired my mom and dad a long time ago. <clears throat> I read in the paper this week, you can give the finger to a police officer now and get paid for it. Yeah. Some guy got a ticket he thought he shouldn't have, flipped the guy off, and the guy wrote him back another ticket for disorderly conduct or whatever, and uh, he took it to court, and, 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 the, and the police department had to pay the guy $4,000 because they said it's his, it's his constitutional right to flip off a police officer. Now, I'm going to tell you, I could never be, I, I was raised where you respected authority. I can honestly say, honestly, maybe you're different. I never got a ticket I didn't deserve. My standard line was, and I learned about the third time, you know, he got me in a, got me in a 65, and I was saying, uh, you know, he pulled me over, and he, uh, and he said, I'm going to give you a ticket. And I said, I was only going uh, 72, and he says, that's good, speed limit 65. <laughs> you know? I mean, in my mind, I thought I was okay, you know. In his mind, the law said no. I could never think of doing that to a police officer. When a police officer comes up to me, it's yes, sir, no, sir. When I get stopped, and I haven't been stopped for a long time, but when I get stopped for a police officer, you know what I do? I already know what, what he's worried about in life. I'll put my hands up on the steering wheel. I, I just sit there. 
You know, the last thing you want to do when he pulls out is get out, in the, out of the car and walk back. Say, what'd you stop me for? You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. No, no. I sit there, put my hands on the deal, and I just sit, or my hand on there, and I just put my hand right there because I want him to know. He got nothing to fear from me, see? Uh, you know, I respect authority. I could never do that. But that's me. See, I, that, I grew up in an era where a lot of you older guys did. That, that was what we, nobody respects authority today. Young kids, they don't. Maybe some of you do. Maybe most of you do here. I don't know, but you know it's true. You know it's true. I have things that I don't like. I, I, I think that, you know, when I, when I grew up, when you walked into a building, you took your hat off. Now you just wear hats sideways, front ways, back ways, and every which way. You know what? And it's, it's, I, I don't ever, you never heard me preach on it. I never say anything about it. But it, that's a preference, you see. And I believe that when you pray, you take your hat off. Okay? But that's me. See? You don't hear me get up and say, all right, today I'm going to preach for all you people with hats on. I don't, you don't do that. I've actually had on Bible study night guys that come in that talk to me and they and, and I notice they got an NIV or another translation of the Bible and they'll come over to me and talk to me and you know what? And they'll say, you know what? I know you preach the King James. I never say a word. They'll say to me, well, I know you guys all use the King James Bible and I use the NIV because I just understand that. But you know what I say? I say, that's great. You keep on using that then. Because you know what I've learned? If you give them grace to grow... If God grows them, then they'll grow out of whatever they're in. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, it's just that simple. Because if you keep growing, you'll grow out of it, and that's all there is to all there is to it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And as a as a you know, the last part of verse fifteen, he says this. He says, "Remember that uh, him that is weak in the faith receive you." but not to doubtful disputations. Uh, that, was, that was the 14.1. Look at verse 15. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Uh, look at verse 16. What a great verse this is. Let not your good be evil spoken of. You know, you can do the right thing at the wrong time in the wrong manner without discernment and discretion, and you can cause all kinds of problems. Second Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. There should be nothing in my life as a mature Christian that is more valuable to me and more protective for me than young Christians. There's enough out there in the world that will hurt them without me hurting them. And listen to me. I'm telling you, as a Bible-believing child of God, if you try to do what's right, you're going to get unduly criticized. You're going to get everything you do, you're going to be attacked on. I mean, people will always blame their failure or the lack of spirituality or maturity on somebody else. You just got to know that. I heard years and years ago, an old guy says, you know what the ministry is to me? And he told the story about, a, about a, a, a guy, a dad and a boy and a mule going to town. Had about five miles to go. So they start out, the dad and the boy walking along, corner mule behind them, just talking. They got to a house down there, and a the guy walked out, and he said, well, you guys are really stupid. Look at you walking down there where uh, you got a good mule to ride. Well, you guys are really dumb. So dad and the boy got on the mule. They're riding together now, going downtown. But another mile, another house, somebody come out from PETA and said, well, I can't believe you two grown men are riding that poor horse by itself, by itself going to break its back. So the dad got off, let the boy ride, walked down there, another house come out. Somebody come out and said, well, look at that snot-nosed kid making his poor daddy walk while he rides that mule. 
So the daddy got the boy off, and he got on the mule, and he started down around, and he went to another house, and somebody came out and said, look at that man making his poor boy walk while he rides that mule. So they finally got the town, and both the boy and the dad were carrying the mule. <laughs> Welcome to the ministry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about understanding our liberty in dealing with young Christians who don't have the light that you and I have. Give them time. You don't let them misuse the liberty or the knowledge you have and become a stumbling block. It's that simple. Look at verse 17. Great verse. For the kingdom of God is not meat. See, that's what you eat, Romans 14. And drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, explaining the kingdom of God, we talked about that in Bible study a couple of weeks ago. We now know that that's the spiritual kingdom inside you when you get saved. Notice it says the, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, I, I know and you know this is true, maybe not true here, but it's true for the most part. You know, we live in a world of baby Christians. I mean, uh, you can always tell a mature Christian by four things. I heard this years and years ago. It is the truest thing I have ever heard. I heard an old boy say one time, if you want to find a mature Christian, just look for four things. Find out, first of all, what he loves. Find out, second of all, what he hates. Find out, third of all, what offends him. And fourthly, find out who he hangs out with. He said, I'll tell you everything you need to know about him. Boy, that is so true. But people get offended so easily, you know, thin skin, no grace, hold grudges, prideful, unforgiving, spiteful, forgetful, uh, you know, just like the church at Corinth. And, uh, you know, there's a great verse back in Psalm 119. I think it's one of the greatest verses I've ever had in my own personal life. Uh, And it's Psalm 119, verse 165. And it simply says this, great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. You know, if you know the Bible and you know God and you're secure of who you are in Christ and you have a sound mind, sound doctrine, sound word, sound speech, sound faith, let me ask you, what on this earth could somebody say to you or do to you that would offend you when you have the book and the peace that passes all understanding? What in the world uh, could somebody do say that you couldn't absolve in the book that God gave you if you really love that book more than life? And that's what it comes down to. It's about, he says... Romans 15, 1. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And that's the key. That's the key. That's the key. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 19. Romans 14. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, the things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Now look at verse 20. For meat, destroy not the work of God. Why? Why? Because we just read, read that meat wasn't, meat wasn't part of the kingdom of God. We're not to get into issues over that. Look at the last of verse 20. All things are endured pure. We talked about that. But look at this. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. You've got to understand the last part of verse 20. The weaker Christian thinks he's sinning. You've got to help him. You've got to help him get through it. You don't throw it in his face that he's not, he's, he, it's okay and you brag about what you can do. I mean, I deal with people all the time. I deal with people all the time. And you get somebody comes in one-on-one, Bible study. Well, last Thursday night was one of the greatest examples you ever had in your life. If you were here and you saw that kid had come in and had a question about tongues. Now, I know what tongues is and I know how to deal with it and the whole nine yards. But you know what? 
I've talked to that kid, and that kid's trying to learn. And I was not going to drop the hammer on him just because I got the truth and he doesn't have the light. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that at all. Yet I had people coming up and saying, why didn't you hammer that guy? Why should have dropped the bomb on him? Why? If he would have come in with, a, with an attitude and wanted to fight, then that's a different story. He didn't come in that way. I've had people all my life. You know, I've learned this. You know what? It's better for God to tell you you're out of line than for me to tell you you're out of line. I will tell you. Now, some people you have to say you're out of line. But in the, at the end of the day, it's much better. I've had people, I had people, I, we had a guy who came to this church probably about three or four years ago. And he was a nice guy. But he was one of these guys who believed that the real Jews over in Jerusalem are not the real Jews. And he believed now the Jews or the Gentiles over here in America that came over from England. And he thinks the Jews over there aren't real. And he came to Bible study four or five times, and he's a really nice guy. Never caused a problem. And he, came, he, wanted to go, he wanted to go to lunch one day. And I said, that's fine. And, he, and when we sat down to eat, and we were eating, you know, having a great time. And he said to me, he said, and when he said this, I knew where he was going because I, you know, some of you guys know how to read signs for turkeys and deer. I know how to read signs for people. And uh, he said to me, he says, I hear in your Bible study that you use the word Jew and the word Israelite to be one of the same. And I said, uh-huh. And he says, I really find that interesting. He says, you know, they're not the same. I said, oh, really? I'm eating. He says, uh, I says, where did you get that? And so then I automatically quoted the verse in the Bible in Acts where Paul calls himself a Jew and then took him over to Romans chapter 11, 1, where he calls himself an Israelite. And he had never seen that before. See, I didn't get in a fight with him and talk about how dumb he was and stupid he was. I just showed him a verse that clearly undid what he just said was true. And he looked like an idiot. You know what he said? Nothing. You know what I said? You can eat the rest of those fries. <laughs> Where do you go with that? Guy comes into church on Thursday night a while back and he says, well, I, I believe the church is going through the tribulation period. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, give me the definitive verse in the Bible on the tribulation. He didn't have a clue where it was. You know how stupid you look when you make a statement like that and then somebody asks you to prove your point and you don't even know where to go? No, that's much better than me saying, well, you're really stupid if you believe that. No. I'll let, I mean, if, 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 when I drop the hammer, I'm going to come after not what you know. I'm going to come after what you don't know. Because I know what you know better than you don't think I know it. Did you know it? Did you know that I know that you don't know? Well, how would that works? <laughs> but I would not attack the guy in most cases if he's just, if, if I think he's, he's somebody who just doesn't have the light. Uh, but, but I want him to go home. And let the Holy Spirit of God work on that. Well, why didn't I know that Paul was an Israelite and a Jew? Why didn't I know he said that? Why, didn't I, why don't I know where the tribulation thing is? I had a guy say one time, well, I don't believe the rapture. And I said, really? He said, no. I said, why not? He says, you show me the word rapture in the Bible. I said, you got a Bible? He says, yeah. I said, show me the word Bible in the Bible. <laughs> Find it yet? Not in there. Now, you know what? Sometimes that's all you got to say. And the Holy Spirit of God takes that and works it through him, and he kicks himself. Did you ever say something really stupid that you shouldn't have said, and then the rest of the day you want to kick yourself in the rear end because you said it? Well, I never have, but I mean, you obviously have. You also did. Sure we have. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. Now, 
He says down here in verse 3, Let him not that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him not which eateth not judge him which eateth. Why? For God hath received him. That's why. Hey, listen, if God can take you and me where we were at and work with you and me to get us from weak Christians to be strong Christians, why can't we do the same for somebody else? I mean, that's what it's all about. We're told to receive him in verse 1 on the basis of God's receiving us. That's just being smarter than the problem. These things aren't not Bible doctrines in most cases, but personal preferences or convictions. They're not based on the Bible. The Bible says either the strong ought to, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I heard a great motivational speaker one time. I like to listen to motivational speakers because I don't know if you know it or not, but most of their motivational principles are right out of the Bible. Zig Ziglar is a great motivational speaker, and there's several other around. And I heard a guy, and I listen to him whenever I can. I don't get much time to do it, but I always learn something from him. And many times they'll click a principle of, of, of a message or something, or they'll give me a great outline, and they don't even know it. Because you can't get motivational principles out of the world. You've got to get them out of the Bible and then mask them as being out of the world. He said one time, or somebody said one time, he said this. He said, little men talk about people. Big men talk about things. Ah, but great men talk about ideas. Now, in a motivational thing, that's a great saying, man. That's a, that'll get you 50 bucks a shot to get in, man, just for that. Because that is a true statement. Because that is a true statement. Little people are always talking about other people. Big men talk about things. You see it all the time down the road, you know. You know, my wife, my dog, my shotgun, or my wife, maybe, or whatever it is. You know, they, you know the bigger the boys, the more they're, hey, what a toy. You know how it is. That's true. But great men who are successful in life, they talk about ideas. Because they're always thinking how to better things or to do something. And I thought to myself, that's a great three-point outline, and that's true, but I'm going to add a fourth one to it. It's true. Little men talk about people. Big men talk about things, but great men talk about ideas. But spiritual men talk about God and what he's done. And boy, that is the bottom line right there. And that's what we ought to do. Now, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter here. The ministry's people. You never allow yourself to get sidetracked. God has a job that he wants you to do. I have a couple of basic little rules that I followed all of my life in the Bible. I learned them at a very young Christian age and thank God for it, but I've never deviated from it and it served me well. One of them thing is this. I never overemphasize something more than God does in the Bible. And the second thing is I never underemphasize something more in the Bible than God does. You see, I told you when we started, God's called you to do a job. God's called me to do a job. He really has. And I don't get caught up in the issues that, that drive your emotions, that don't really matter, that waste the time, that pull me off task. I can't afford to do that. I don't know what he's called you to do. I just know that he, what he's called me to do. God didn't call me to establish local churches. But probably in the course of my life, I look back this week just thinking about putting this message together, I can trace about 20 or 30 churches that young men that I've, I've trained in the ministry or started churches, maybe more than that. God didn't call me to start revivals, though God, through my years of preaching, I've seen some great revivals. God didn't call me to be an evangelist or build a school or run a Christian newspaper or even to write books, though God's been good to me. I've written four or five, and we've got a website that goes all over the world, trying to put it out on a webcam where you can get it on live wherever you want to go. I thank God for that. But that, that was not my job. You know, my job, I feel like, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, I feel like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, when he claimed himself, he laid for himself out, he says uh, that he was a Jew born out of due season. You know what that means in your Bible? 
That means that Paul realized that he was the greatest guy to win the Jews to Christ. He had the background, he had the training, he had the burden, he had everything he needed. And he was the greatest guy in his mind to reach the Jews for Christ. But God never sent him to the Jews, he sent him to the Gentiles. Paul was like a fish out of water. I told you a couple weeks ago, that's the way I am. I feel like Paul, born out of due season. I don't belong in the 21st century, probably even the 20th. My heyday would have been back in the 1700s and the 1800s and when, it, when you could preach the book straight, hot, and true and you could, get, you could just nail it out. I, I don't, I, I'm not good in this society we're in. I'm just not. I'm, just, I'm too black and white with things. And, uh, but I, like Paul, God called me for one particular job, you see, and I had to deal with that and settle it. You see it here in my ministry. 85% of our church is couples that are, you know, 40 or under. And uh, we, have a, we have a real thing for reaching young married couples and young singles and all of that. And we get older couples to come in. And that doesn't take away from the older couples when you understand your job. Because our job, Bible says the older ladies ought to teach the younger ladies. Bible says the older men ought to be worth the pastor trying to bring the whole thing about. I mean, everybody's got their job. I can't tell you what your job is. I only know what my job is. But uh, you see it in our ministry here. And uh, you know what the Lord did? He didn't let me be born in 1800 or 1700, even 1600. That would have been a great time. He didn't let me do that. He stuck me down in 1950 and gave me the last half of the 20th and maybe a few years in the 21st. You know what he did? He took a book that Christian scholars and Christian educators and Christian celebrity pastors had left and abandoned and replaced in the lives of young men with a piece of godless trash to destroy their faith. And then you know what he did? He reached down over heaven. I was looking, uh, I was watching uh, something this week, and it was a documentary on, on World War II, and I, I, it was kind of a panoramic view of somebody talking. It was a real footage, and it showed about a 1,000 guys all from the back charging across the field. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, you know what? Now what's the deal here? Look at that, 1,000 guys. They all dressed alike. They all got the same kind of helmets. They all got the same rifles. Same packs, same boots. You can't tell them one guy from the other. Thousand guys out there. I said, that was the way God looked at this planet. Thousand guys. Why in the world did God reach down and pull me out of this mess and give me the job that he gave me to do? And at the same time, you ask yourself the same question. Why did God reach down over the banners of the heaven and save you for the job that he wants to call you to do? God reached down over the banners of the heaven got me saved. I look, if somebody says, how would you equate your life? I say, well, before I was saved, I'd equate myself as a rebel without a cause. Then after I got saved, I'd equate myself as a rebel with a cause. Because I stick in the nostrils of every sanctimonious, Bible-denying teacher, preacher, ever going to find on this planet. I've never gotten along with them, never will get along with them, never try to get along with them. You know why? But God pulled me out of the bits of hell and saved me and gave me a street sense education and then put me with some of the greatest men in the world who loved that book before they died and got me a good dose of that thing of the Philadelphian uh, church age and then let me cross over into Laodicean and called me for one purpose and that is to guard that book so every young man and young lady that wants it in the last part of this mess before Christ comes back can have an absolute standard in your life. Some people like that, some people don't. I could care less. Look at verse 4. Every man, his master, rises or falleth. You know what? If that's what God called me to do, what do I care if you pleases you? 
What do I care if you like it or not? The bottom line is, as long as God's pleased and that's my job, that's when I'll do it. My job is to take every young man and every young lady that God sends this way. And as we saw there in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9 last week, our job is to give portions to those who nothing was prepared. My job is a rear guard action. My job is to hold the line in the face of an apostasy that wants to overswell this church like a tsunami wants to take out the islands. My job is to build a New Testament church as hard as it is, and maybe it's impossible, like I said, but my job is to teach that Bible straight, hot, and true and kick the hell out of anybody who wants to get and mess with that book. That's a nasty job. Somebody's got to do it. You know what? That's what he's called me to do. And maybe that's not your job. That's mine. And in that job, I've never tried to get pulled off of my task. Somebody gave me great advice about 40 years ago. They said, Bob, find out what God wants you to do. And when you're sure that's what God wants you to do, then you put every energy and all your might into doing what he's called you to do. That was the greatest advice anybody ever gave me. I won't get caught up with people and the things that don't really matter. My job is to understand that in a church... Everybody gets a fair shot. My job is to create an environment that is conducive to your spiritual growth, that when you walk in that door, wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with, you hang out here immediately. You can start to grow through that thing and get past that thing and find out what God wants you to do. That's the job of any church. I'm to look at God's people and I'm to see them as God sees them. And then I'm to receive them as God received me. I'm to give them the every chance to grow. I hold them accountable. I hold them responsible. But then I get them to see themselves as God sees them and then see the plan and the mission that God has for them. Romans chapter 14 is a great chapter on showing you and me how to stay focused and not getting off task. The little things that baby Christians get involved in that are not doctrinal issues, they consume most of our time. That's what was happening in Romans chapter 14. That's why he's laying out to them, don't get caught up in those issues. Stay on task. Stay focused. Choose your battles. When you see a young Christian come in, help them. Realize that they are there. God may have brought them here. God may have sent them here. You give them every opportunity. If they don't grow, then they will go. But give them the opportunity that they need. Our responsibility younger Christians as older Christians. Give them the grace to grow, but keeping them accountable and responsible in that growth. Two words I gave you, and I'm going to close with this. If you don't get nothing else out of my message, get these two words. I told you last week that 90% of my, my ministry is redefining things. Okay. Here's two definitions you want to take home with you. When you come through the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is one of the five wisdom books, but you'll find throughout all those books two key words, and I've laced them through our message today. Discretion and discernment. Proverbs talks about how a young man gets into the Word of God. He does what he's supposed to do with the Word of God. He gets discretion and he gets discernment. Now, let me tell you what they are. Discernment comes in a young man or a young lady's life by experience in working with people. This is why I try to get you involved with people as quickly as I can. I tr- you prove yourself around here and you show that you've got, got my heart in ministry and want to do what's right and you're not some Pharisee someplace and you're going to stay and do what it needs to do. You're going to get a good shot at it. And you know what you'll get in that? You'll get discernment. You know what discernment is? Talked a little earlier about some of you guys that uh, we got some great hunters in this place. 
Norbert, you probably don't know Norbert. I don't think they're here today. Norbert's probably one of the greatest turkey hunters in the whole state of Missouri, if not the whole country. We've got great deer hunters. We got guys that can do that, and you know what deer hunters do? They go out and they, they go out weeks before deer season, and they look for signs, rubs, where they're rubbing their antlers up or on the thing. Now, you go out for turkeys. You know what you do? You look for go out and look for the scratching, where they're scratching the leaves back to try to get the food that's underneath the leaves. Those are things you look for. I had a guy out there in Montana that was one of the greatest trackers in the country. He could track somebody through rocks. He just looked for all the things he could do. Great thing. But in everything in life, there's a, there's a process that if you spend your time studying it, you can learn how to track it. And in Christianity, there's signs that you want to look and you learn about circumstances, people, situations in the Bible. And when you get good at it in time, you get something through the Word of God and through your ability to start looking at the principles and using the principles, you get what the Bible calls discernment. Discernment is the ability to know what to do on any given situation. Discernment is the ability to see a situation for what it really is and not get caught up in what it appears to be. And very frankly, most of God's people can never get to that point because they won't understand the great principles. Discernment is key in ministry. Discernment is your ability to see the situation and know what to do based on what you have. And then when you have discernment, the second thing is discretion. Discretion. You see, discernment is knowing what to do, but discretion is knowing when to do it. Because you can do the wrong, right thing at the wrong time. You can do the right thing in the wrong way. You cannot have discernment in it. Many decisions I make and I have to deal with, people don't like it because they're not in my position and they don't see what I see. Discernment is seeing the thing as it is, being able to watch the sign, see where it's going, know what it's going to be, and deal with it before it gets to that point. But discretion is when, knowing when to deal with it. And I'll give people all the grace in the world. I'll give people grace to work through any problem they got as long as they work through it at the end of the day. I say it all the time. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what problems you have. I don't care where you're at this morning. All I care about is where you go from this point on in your walk and your relationship with God. And we as older Christians have to look at the younger Christians that come into our church as the greatest single commodity we have. We need to take them in where they're at, not be judgmental toward them, open our arms, receive them, but not to doubtful disputations. I don't care what shape they're in or condition they're in when they come in. I don't care if they're a rank alcoholic or they got needle tracks all up their arms. I don't care. All I care about is this church being the church of the New Testament that he's talking about, that we understand that our money in the bank, spiritually speaking, is the people that walk through that door and how we interact with them and give them the chance. Doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable. Doesn't mean we don't say, you know what, I wish you wouldn't do that here. Doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable, but it's how you hold them accountable, see? It's discernment and discretion. Well, you can see from Romans chapter 14, and we just cracked it today, what a great chapter that is. My goal is to take, as I say many, many times, everything we've got now is moving in the right direction to give every young man and young lady, no matter what level you're on, help the older ones, help me, bring the young ones along, the ones that are in the mid-level range, keep moving in that direction and help the younger ones, and then take every younger Christian who comes into this church and say, you know what, you've got cars blanc as far as the Bible. That's why I give books away back there. 
That's why when I get a visitor, you know, or somebody, I'll give them Bibles. I'll give them books. You know what? I want to have an investment in the fact that you might want to do what's right in the Bible. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to give you something about the Bible or the Bible or whatever to help make that investment. Because this is a church that cares about your spiritual growth. This is a church that wants to help you get to where God wants you to be. Romans chapter 14, my friend, is a great chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you.